Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with another round number, like it matters, episode 380, and part two of my conversation with percussionist with the New York City Ballet Orchestra, freelancer, composer, and arranger, Pablo Rieppi. Let's get right to it. If you've heard part one, which I hope you did, Pablo and I discussed his performance career as it stands now, his teaching of all levels of percussion, and a lot about his compositions and arrangements. We followed that up with discussions of his philosophy of teaching and the recycling of well-known percussion method books for updated teaching purposes. In part two, we'll get to hear more about Pablo's path to where he is now, including his upbringing, mostly in the Washington, D.C. area, his jazz and drum set beginnings, his years at George Mason University in Virginia, and his master's at Juilliard, along with the usual close to the show, which includes a lot about movies, books, cooking, sports teams, art, and the art of listening. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on January 4th, 2024, and it begins right now. All right, Pablo, let's back up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the D.C. area uh, in Northern Virginia, in Annandale and Springfield, basically. Uh, suburb of Washington, D.C. My parents worked in Washington, D.C. Um, I came to the United States when I was four. So I was born in, in Uruguay, in South America. Um, so when I, I barely remember coming here, but um, I was like three or four years old. And we've lived, we basically lived in Virginia our whole lives in different towns. Um, and it wasn't until I came to Juilliard to do my master's that I moved for, out of that area. And then basically became a New Yorker until now, which I love. I love, I mean, I, the DC area is really nice too. Um, I just love, I love being in New York. So yeah, I grew up in the DC area. Did you have any family members in the arts growing up? No, I'm like a one-off. Well, I had a, I had a second cousin who played guitar in South America. I never like took lessons or anything like that. Once in a while we, we'd visit, I'd hear him play, but that's the only person I can think of that did anything remotely related. M- my dad's side of the family are all like doctors. My, my grandfather, my mom's side had his own like iron. Uh, it was artistic. It was like all these beautiful iron like gates and stuff like that. My dad was involved in finance. My mom was worked in an international organization. So it was, there was nothing. I don't know how I got interested, but I remember as a youngster in seventh grade, I went to one of those talent shows that we had. And there was a group of four guys. I can't remember if they were any good or not. At the time, I thought they were amazing. They got up and played. I think it was part of Temples of Syrinx by Rush on after 2112 album. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, yeah. And I listened to it and just that visceral, you know, the, of hearing the visceral feeling of hearing, of hearing those live instruments, they were, they probably weren't very good because they were very young, you know, and playing difficult music. And, but just hearing the drums live, the guitar live, all this stuff live, I went home and I immediately purchased that album. And for years, I think the yearning was like dormant. I didn't really do anything about it. I, 
I, I had a friend like a year later who bought a drum set in his house. And again, I remember going downstairs and he just got in the drum. So he, he was just like banging stuff out. But I, I, I remember feeling like, Oh my God, this is, this sounds amazing. You know, just the sound of the drums live. Eventually, I think it was like ninth or 10th grade. Um, my parents bought, bought us a drum set, like a toy drum set. And we destroyed it immediately. My brother and I, and then we got, a, like a, a beginners but like a real drum set but for beginners a brand called viking i'm not even sure if it still exists and then i i i got infected all i wanted to do was play the drums i would come home from school race down to the basement my brother, my brother and i would fight over time to play you know drums and i basically had a teacher i would say that great guy i would say the teacher my my record listening was always ahead of what I was learning. So it was it was all drum set based. So I'm not gonna say I was self-taught, but a lot of what I learned that I was using was stuff I learned off records. I didn't start my classical training until my first year in college, actually. You know, I was basically just a rock and jazz drummer up until that point. I don't know how I started. I don't know, I don't know how. I was so naturally interested in the sound when I heard it. When I did hear it, it kind of became an obsession. I just found it. It was like eating something that's delicious. Mm -hmm. When I heard the sound, it felt delicious to me. It felt so appealing that I had to learn how to do it better, basically. That aspect has always stuck with me, you know. One of the, I mean, we've been talking a lot about teaching and creativity and I think that there's I've, – I've certainly noticed over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, that learning by listening without a teacher is frowned upon frequently. Like it's not seen as a legitimate way – and I'm putting legitimate in quotes here – to learn, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's one of the most – it's one of the – it's one of the equally important dimensions of learning in my opinion – well, it's funny because there's contradiction. You're absolutely right. It's seen as like, well, that's not like as legit as like going to a book and reading it. And that's total BS, you know? You have to cultivate a goal. You have to cultivate a sound goal in your in your mind. And that takes a long time um, from listening extensively. Like you have to know what you want to sound like in order to get better. There's no if, ands, or buts. You're not, you're not going to create a great way of playing in a vacuum because there's so much tradition in history that uh, at, at the very least an excellent shortcut would be to listen to a lot of different people. <laughs> right. Listening and playing by ear is something that you're absolutely right. As I started classical music, it became yeah. exponentially less emphasized and less important, but the older I get and the more experience I get, it becomes so much more important, an important thing in my own development now and the way I play. If you're going to play a Bach violin sonata on marimba, then you better listen to a lot of not just violin players, but piano players and people that know how to play the music, right? Yeah. And then have studied it. It's like, if you're going to play, if you want to get involved in the drum set, then you should listen to some really great not just jazz drummers but jazz pianists great bass players yeah um that really can really swing and can 
show you what the style is supposed to sound like and what how the how the vocabulary is supposed to be spoken how it's supposed to be played i mean that's what all this stuff is about when you're learning the style you know you when you're playing a rudimental solo you better know how this stuff is phrased you better know about cadences you better know how these guys do you better know like what what kind of drums they usually play these on because that's why some of this music was written the way it is yeah it's so important to listen and try to play by ear it's funny because my my son uh is really involved in jazz drumming and sure they have theory homework and, and ear training but you know what what assignment he has every single week he has to go and transcribe part of a record every single week yeah right here just listen right some some of it it's a trumpet some it could be a drum uh trumpet solo it could be a drum set solo. It could be, uh, I mean, maybe not a whole piano solo because a lot of chords, but, um, you know, a, a more melodic solo, they have to transcribe them on a weekly basis. It's the art of listening. Yeah. If you're going to be a great musician, you have to be a great listener. So listening to music, trying to figure it out by ear, it's so important. So important. And I know you're, you're absolutely right. It gets it gets shoved up to the side, particularly in like classical training programs. Like it's not important. But you know what? That brings up another thing, mm-hmm. which is uh, how much improvisation does a classical music student do? Right. I would say zero, very little to zero. Yeah. But Mozart, who is regarded as one of the greatest figures in classical music, or Bach, improvised all day long. Beethoven. <laughs> List Beethoven, like so so many, so many of the great (laughs) classical composers, yeah, were great. They they were great improvisers. Yeah, they could do it on the fly. Right. It's just it's been it's been everything's been so categorized that it's like oh no we don't do that in classical music. Well, not any anymore. Right. But it used to be a thing. Yeah. You know, only only jazz people improvise. That's you know, I, I I grew up loving all kinds of music. So I don't understand these lines and divisions that are in different. Sure. They have different styles and they have different accents like, like French does and Spanish does, but they're all about communicating. Right. And they're all about, you know, hopefully coming together and doing stuff together. And that's what music music just in our language. does that. And the more you learn the language, the more you learn different aspects and dialects of the language, the better you can communicate. So it makes all the sense. In the, I mean, I'm trying to, I got my jazz piano book here. I'm trying to slowly learn how to do that a little bit, you know, maybe before I die, I'll be able to do something, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I grew up with drum set and I, I cross those things all the time. All that stuff has benefited my classical playing. Yeah. You know, and vice versa. So I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. It's, it's just saying to yourself, I want to be less intelligent <laughs> when you're cutting yourself off like that. I want to know less, please. Yes. I want to know less. Okay. <laughs> All right. If you say so. Is there a drum on that? I'm not no. interested then. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be a thing on, uh, it was like a, it was like a, it was like a public service announcement when I was a kid, but it, the, the tag was the more, you know, the more, you know. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's that simple. Yeah. Those are awesome points. I always, yeah, I think about if I if I have worked with students on um, on chorale on marimba or rolling or however you want to call it, I I'm always like, you need to listen to you know who has chorales, everybody, string quartet, brass ensemble, organ, 
choir. Listen to all of those. <laughs> then come back and look at this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The other thing is the other aspect of improvising or allowing yourself to see something as a three-dimensional object, right? In other words, see this piece, not just the way it's written, but what do you think about it? What would happen if you change this? You know, orchestral auditions. Like, so I obviously get a lot of people, I help sometimes in preparing people for orchestral auditions or school auditions. That's a lot of what I do towards the end of, you know, their time with me. A few years ago, I had a, like a light bulb moment. I was actually, I was at the Philharmonic and one of my, one of the guys there, you know, all excellent, excellent players. Great. Um, this person came up to me and we all do this a lot when we're playing with each other, right? Like, Hey, how do these mallets sound? You know, whatever. So this person said to me, Hey, I have these four xylophone mallets I'm trying out for this part. I just got them. And I just, I'm just wondering if you could give me your opinion. I'm going to, I'm going to use them all during the course of this rehearsal and, you know, give me your opinion. So we finished and the person said, what do you think? And I said, well, if you're going to play, play it that accurately, that well, and that together with the ensemble, then I think there's two or three mallets that work. It just depends on what's your flavor. I'm just giving you my opinion at this point. It's like they all work. And if you think about it, the way people approach orchestral auditions is completely the opposite. They say to themselves, hey, what's the one way that's, what is the right way to play this excerpt? the right way to play the excerpt. So let's pause that thought for a second and let's go to that final round of the audition where there's three people playing. They're all great because they're all in the finals, right? They probably all play the right notes and they probably all sound different. Sure, the, the committee's going to pick like, well, I like that one the best because I like chocolate the best instead of like strawberry or whatever. That's my flavor. But... And some of those people end up winning another audition, meaning like they're all qualified, they're all great, but they all sound different, right? If you can take that idea and apply it to your own playing, like why can't I take like, let's say Porgy and Bess on Xylophone? Why can't I play Porgy and Bess and purposely play it slightly different, like five different ways? Not wrong, not the wrong notes or the right wrong accents, but a slightly different feel, a slightly different um, approach, slightly different mallet right? Or a slightly different or purposely put in accents that don't exist sometimes. So that if you're in the middle of performing one of these things and something goes the wrong way, what a great improviser does is they, that's a great idea. I'm going to go with it. Right. What a classical player does is like, Oh my God, that's the end of the world. <laughs> right. It's like two completely different perspectives. But if you adopt the perspective of like, I'm going to roll with it and go with what happens or have the flexibility to, yeah, okay, this is a good idea. It's fine. All of a sudden you've changed your, your whole perspective on how you're approaching the whole thing. Instead of having this sliver, walk, instead of walking, walking a tightrope, you're all of a sudden walking across a bridge in your playing with, that accepts different things that are all great outcomes, but they're all realistic because that's the way life is. And so this, I, that's why that's another reason why I think improvisation is so important is because there ha there's more than one way to think about something. And I think basically what it, people say, like uh, jazz is the democratization of freedom or something like that, or uh, it, it's like 
it's freedom, but you're working within with other people. So there's, you have to give other people time to speak, right? And you have to listen. And then you have to speak as well. But it's based on being free and having free of ideas. And I think that's a very healthy approach to classical music. I'm not saying change the pitches. I'm not saying phrase it in a way that people are like, what the heck are you doing? But giving yourself the freedom to be able to play something five or six different ways that are all, that all make sense. I think that's completely realistic. Cause if you got, again, if you got five players that are playing a Bach violin sonata, right? All they're all the same notes, same rhythms, but they're all going to sound different. And three or four of those might be like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. For different reasons. So that means that the piece can be played in different ways and it's still great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome points there. And I've, I've heard from other orchestral folks who have, who have not been as boxed in, in the way that you're describing, but have, have said that part of their training was to, when they were getting ready for auditions was to realize that one, one conductor is going to want to hear this and another one's going to want to hear this and another one and your ability, kind of what you're saying with the improvisation, but your ability to switch style quickly for the next person and to show that you can play end of Chike four symbols five different ways to satisfy different types of personality is to your benefit. And that's realistic musically too, because that does happen on the job, you know, when you're asked to do something. Yeah. So responding to feedback and being flexible also, yeah, really important. I think when I was a student, I didn't, I know that I didn't really live by that. I thought more the other way, like, Oh, it has to be this way. It has to be, you know, cause you thought there was safety and having it one way, but the problem is when it doesn't go exactly that way, then you're completely thrown off. But you know, flexibility is, it's funny. This, I don't want to go too down. I don't want to too far down the rabbit hole on this idea because I can go on forever. But this idea of being flexible with your thinking, there's two words that I would, I think, sum up my teaching philosophy, and that's creativity and connection. Those are the two words that I think are at the heart of a lot of what I teach and the, and the way I'm trying to play. Connections, because any idea that we've talked about so far today, you can make a connection philosophically, like about music or about the way you live. You can also take that same idea and relate it to your technique, your snare drum technique. Or you can take the same idea and relate it to the way maybe you're doing your workout today, you know, the way you're going to run or bike. You know what I mean? Like these, these ideas are, they, they exist in a holistic capacity too. And they're connected to everything we do only because they're proven principles that exist in our environment and our, in our known universe. You know what I mean? So this idea of, of flexibility in your thinking, well, what does an athlete do when they're going to perform at their highest level? They're stretching. They're trying to be loose, right? And relaxed, flexible. When you want to play something that's difficult, you better be relaxed and flexible or else you're not going to be able to pull it off. I mean, sure, we have to use tension in our playing for certain things. But we're not, we're not playing from a point of tension. We're playing from a point of relaxation to play our best. So these ideas exist like as concepts, uh, structures and concepts, but they also exist in, in, a, in a very like physically applicable way too in the way we approach technique. 
Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Same thing with improvisation. Improvisation is basically another word to say you're flexible in your thinking. So these are all things, if they exist for a, a person running the 50-yard dash in the Olympics, if that concept exists, then there's a way that it exists in your playing and there's a way that it exists in your playing and your thinking rather. And I think that the more connections you can make and also connections, like I mentioned earlier, like the tambourine snare drum triangle thing, how are those connected? Yeah. How is the snare drum connected to four mallet playing? How is, how is the idea of rebound connected when you're playing cymbals? If people could understand that you would get no more air pockets ever again. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you, if you understand how those things are connected, you would never get an air pocket ever again, ever. I mean, that's, that's the value yeah. of drawing connections between things. And this idea of improvisation, I think is incredibly important because it's liberating. Yeah. You know, go, if anybody's listening to this, uh, to me at this point, um, I would say go home and see how much, how, how many different things you can do with what you already know, you know? How much freedom are you willing to take in the practice room where nobody can hear you? Who cares? How much freedom are you willing to take? Or are you not, are you, are you so boxed in that you're not willing, you're not willing to say to yourself, like you're not, you're not willing to take that, that freedom, that step. Right. But I guarantee you that if you are, then things will change for the better in your playing, in your life, all kinds of things. And that includes like, this idea of diversity, I'm so sorry we have to talk about diversity, right? It should just exist. Like having people from different backgrounds, races, genders, uh, sexual orientation. We have to talk about it because we put up barriers, right? Barriers in our, in our communication and our learning. It's unfortunate. I mean, I, I, we should talk about it, but there should be no barriers. We should be communicating we should be interacting we should be enriching ourselves from different ideas and different cultures and, and different things and your playing your percussion playing is no different it's exactly the same where do you go to undergrad i went to george mason university okay uh which was a, it's a state school in virginia uh, northern virginia I, I basically stayed home for my undergrad i like i said i didn't have any classical background so i didn't know what a major scale was and i had a great teacher there and i practiced all the time that's all i did was practice there who was and then four years later i auditioned for juilliard uh ken harbison he was in the national symphony and he retired i think uh, a year and uh two years ago Um, if i'm getting this wrong i apologize and he was a great teacher for me he was very patient he had really nice hands i could i could see like oh that's what that's what a nice snare drum roll sounds like, or, you know, that's what a relaxed approach sounds like, um, which for me was, was very valuable, uh, very musical guy. Um, and again, like really patient. So I think he, he was the right person at the right time. I also had this incredible uh, mentor, Anthony Maiello, who a lot of people out there might know. He's a very important uh, musician and educator who was at, who started at George Mason just a couple of years before I got there. Um, at the time he ran the jazz band, the symphonic band, the percussion ensemble, he kind of did everything. He came from Crane and they hired him at George Mason to kind of build up the program, which he did. Um, 
so I saw him all the time and he would say things like, if you're not, if you guys aren't practicing six hours a day, then you, then you shouldn't be involved in music. And I was like, hmm, six. Okay. So I should practice eight. You know, it was that kind of mentality. It was really helpful for me. And he was, he was an excellent, like, he was excellent at salt edge and very good conductor. And so I would see the example in front of me all the time. And between that, so between those two people, and there were other people also, I had a terrific uh, music history teacher, Dr. Brawley, and a really good um, uh, theory teacher, Glenn Smith. They were all like pretty patient people, but very knowledgeable and really good teachers. In percussion ensemble, uh, there was a guy named Aubrey Adams who was in the Air Force Band at the time, and he would do the percussion ensemble after a while. And uh, anyway, they're just you know professionals on a really high level that kind of showed me, okay, this is the direction this is what you have to be able to do. And uh, so I was very lucky that they were they were there when I when I got there. What what I know you you keep saying that they were patient with you and obviously you wanted to get better, but what was the transition like for you to just be in a more classically oriented world and taking those kinds of lessons at th- that age? And by that time, I was a pretty strong swimmer, but it felt like somebody dropped you into a deep end and you were not a great swimmer. So you're like treading, treading, and you don't really know how to move. You know, you're just yeah. treading water. Right. You're working hard, but you're not quite sure how to make it efficient and good and all this stuff. That's what it felt like looking back on it. Because everything got thrown at me, like the marimba, timpani, being a great reader, being in ensembles. Um, you know, it was it was a lot at once. It was a more forgiving environment than a place like you know, Juilliard, for example, we were expected to be on a, a high level from day one and, you know, and, and learn, but there's a certain threshold there. Right. Um, this place was more accommodating to my, my abilities at the time. And it allowed me to grow because the facilities were, you know, I had all the instruments there. Um, most of the other people didn't really practice that much. So I got the practice room a lot of times and I would just basically, you know, eat, go to the restroom, go to classes. I mean, it was hard for me to go to classes. And then I would just, I would just practice. I also had a marimba at home. So I could do that at home as well. My work ethic's always been pretty good. So if I knew now about practicing what I knew then, it would have been a much easier journey, like in terms of deliberate practice techniques and organizing your time. And, you know, so many things that now are just, normal a normal part of the pedagogic routine um that are very valuable i used to think about that stuff and 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 think you know i wish i knew i wish i knew that back then but that but we're all in the same boat that's how we that's how we evolve and you know things things happen the way they're supposed to happen and and learning from all this stuff is the important thing you learn it when you learn it yeah I mean, that's right. That's exactly right. You learn it when you learn it. Yeah. Perfect way to just to say it. Are you some, do you find that this kind of gets into the work ethic thing, but do you find yourself as a, as, as restless or, I mean, do you like filling up your time with activities? Uh, Cause you, you said, you said towards the beginning that like, you don't, you never find yourself bored. Um, Cause there's always something to do. Is, is that you've always had that kind of ingrained or at least just part of your personality? 
No, I don't think it was always ingrained, but the, I, I will say that the moment I started, the moment I got that drum set, wait, yeah. all those years ago, from that moment on, I was basically, I always had something to do. So I think music has taught me so many things about who I am, like psychologically, relationships, um, in, inner relationships, the relationship with myself. I'm grateful because I love to play and it's given me a career and all those things that, that, you know, you can see from the outside, but from the inside, it's, it's given me so many things. And I've been able to pass that on, you know, to my kids, like they, they both learned piano and my son is, is more active in jazz and things like that. But I know that it's an enrichment, you know, in their lives that they don't even realize right now, but in the future, like, you know, 10 years from now, when they're, want to play in a band with somebody or they want to go to the piano and just relax. I know that that's going to be there for them. And for me, as you've, as you've mentioned also, you know, yeah, I do have, I do have things like, like after I get off here, I'm going to have some lunch and I'll probably go practice for a little while and then do some things I need to do musically. And, you know, also, as you know, there's the whole administrative aspect of, of that you didn't expect when you got right. into music and you know, wanted to play somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But I'm thankful for all of it. Music has taught me so much. And so that feeds, keeps feeding the excitement of wanting to do it. Um, I, I still love to practice. I, I like, I love practicing. Um, when I'm not at work, I, I always set some time in my day to practice. So yeah, that's still, that's still the same. It's changed. You know, uh, I, I know you can probably relate to this that you know, your responsibilities change. I see you in an office right there. You know, I got my, um, um, is my computer that I work from. And there are many there, as you get to be a professional musician, no matter what field you're, what kind of music you're doing, whatever there, there are other roles that, that get added on to that are not just playing an, an instrument. Yeah. But, you know, something interesting happened like a number of years ago, my wife decided, my wife went back and got her master's degree. This is like before we had kids or anything. And she was taking the GRE. She was working and studying for the GRE. If I was home for a couple of hours before I went to work or whatever, I would pull out. I was always interested in math. So I pulled up the, the math version, the math portion of the GRE. Yeah. And I started reviewing like algebra and basic geometry. It's always, I've always liked it. And it, it felt like, a, like I was doing a puzzle every day. And I noticed that I did it for a couple of months. I noticed that when I went to go practice, like my sight reading was all of a sudden much better. I was reading music faster and it's only because I was exercising my brain in a different way. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff that we have to do on the administrative, administrative level sometimes, not all of it, but some of the things we have to think and plan out projects and things like this, I don't see them so much as sometimes they do suck up the oxygen that you need for other things, but other times it contributes to what you're doing in it. And it, 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 it creates like a way of thinking that can help you as a player or at the very least when you go after doing a couple of hours of administrative work, you're like ready to go practice because you want to do something that's refreshing. Right. And, yeah. and that you love. So yeah. again, goes back to my word connections where you're finding ways to, to help one thing, pick one thing and help it in another area and find the similarities or what you can extract or, or take from it to make it better. Awesome. Awesome points. When you get to Juilliard, that's where you did your master's, right? 
So mm-hmm. when you get there, is there a – you mentioned kind of like a threshold between like, you know, at certain programs. Was there a like a cultural difference? Was there a city difference? Were these – were all these other things a part of your experiences when you get there? Um, in terms of the cultural – in terms of this, you're talking about living, you know, in Northern Virginia to, to New York, which is an excellent point. Um, to tell you the truth, I ended up at Juilliard because I really wanted to be in New York. I had worked at a, the New York State Music Camp as an undergrad. Again, Anthony Maiello, my great mentor in undergrad, the conductor, got me a job one summer at New York State Music Camp. And I, I ended up working there for two summers. And it was as a counselor, but really all we did was the all the counselors had like ensembles that were basically other college kids. And then basically your only responsibility was making sure that the boys stayed on the boys' side at night and the girls stayed on the girls' side at night. And that was, right. you know, because you were mingling with the kids or kind of like your friends because you're young. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was actually fun hanging out with, with some of the campers during the day. At night you just had to make sure that that separation existed. Other than that, you know, it's just it was just playing music and having a good time. But in the course of that, these everybody else that worked there was like from Manhattan School of Music, um, Manus, uh, Juilliard, and the percussionists were all uh, percussionists were all from Juilliard. So I got to be friends with them, and at the end of the summer, they asked, "Oh, you want to you want to come hang out in New York City for like a week and just hang out with us?" And I was like, "Sure." You know, the second I stepped in New York City, it's like, ah, uh, okay. you know, it was just like, oh my god, I have I have to be here. There's something about it, like the energy, the excitement, the that just really appealed to me. It's like one of those places where you love it or you hate it, I think. For me, I walked in, I loved it. So I did that again the next summer. So by then I realized like I have to be in New York City. So I auditioned for all the New York City schools and a couple of others, of course. Um, and you know, I, I fortunately I got into Juilliard. So that so that 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 cultural in terms of living in the city, I was you know, I was super happy. The level at the school was something I was not used to. I came from a program that is mainly education majors. Like I said, not everybody practiced that much. There were a couple of people that were outstanding there that I really looked up to. But in general, it was, you know, I, I had become kind of the big fish in a, in a smaller pond there. Right. Just because, you know, I just, I just worked hard. Not that I'm special or anything, but... Um, so, but when I got to Juilliard, I was, that was definitely not the case. There are people that have been playing, studying classical since they were like in third grade and playing piano since they were five and transitioned to percussion, you know, people with a lot more experience than I had. Um, the orchestra was, you know, like, uh, Alan Gilbert was a student conductor when I was there and then he ended up being the conductor in your Philharmonic, you know, up in you know, up until a few years ago. So I went to school with people like that, um, that I ended up, you know, being big names in, in, in the music industry. When I got there, I was like, Whoa, you know, I, I kept practicing super hard. Um, I would say that I was pretty green when I got there, but by the time I left, I, again, I was, you know, in a good position. Um, cause I worked really hard. I, I enjoyed my time there. So, if teachers asked me to do something, I would do it. You know, I would practice it. Or I, I was really involved in the new music ensemble and the percussion ensemble and the orchestra. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've always enjoyed it. I've always loved playing music. So yes, that transition was scary for me. The first semester, I felt a little overwhelmed because it was a big jump. 
but with hard work and you know good relationships with people like with my teachers and other students and realizing that i'm not the only one that felt that way uh you know i got through it and then eventually i got my footing and yeah, it was great I'm, I'm so glad i went there all right pablo i finished with a segment called random ask questions and we've actually the there there usually are percussion segments, but we've actually covered them within the conversation. So I'm going to add go to the kind of the more the weirder fun ones. So first question is: Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Yeah, I don't think it's funny because I've, I've I've thought about that. Like there are people that have obvious characteristics, and and I've impersonate tried to impersonate them, but. I don't know if anybody that's impersonated me. Um, I would love to see it though. If anybody has one, please, please, please video and send it to me. Cause <laughs> I, I, I love laughing. I love things that are funny and I love, uh, the older I get, the more I, la- I love laughing at myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get on that. Um, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? That's a good one. I think, I think like one time I forgot to add, like, I, I don't usually bake. I usually more make the savory things, but when, that's why I probably stay away from it. But I think one time I was making bread and I put like too much yeast and I let it rest. And when I came back, there was a disaster all over the place. I could have grown into like this monster. <laughs> I sliced up part of my finger chopping. Ooh. Fortunately, the knife, the knife was so sharp that it didn't really hurt. But um, yeah, I, I do a lot of cooking. So, I mean, you're bound to burn, cut, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's less of them now, but every once in a while, there'll be some kind of doozy, you know. <laughs> That's good. Well, do you have a, on the converse side, do you have a specialty that you make? Not really. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to do more and more things. I would say that there are dishes, my fam, that we like a Sunday dinner, like a, you know, like a chicken, like the chicken cutlets, like, mm, yeah, with a, a nice salad is, is like our Sunday go to. Um, so I, you know, I pound, uh, I take the chicken off the bone and got, pound it out. And, you know, just, I do it all. It's not, it's not a difficult dish, but it's just a very homey thing, especially yeah. now in the winter, like light, light, light of fire you know, nice glass of red wine and that dish, man. Oh, it's just a very, very comforting thing for Thanksgiving this year. I deboned an entire Turkey and then I stuffed it and rolled it back up. Um, cause my kids don't like eating Turkey. So I, I thought I would do slight trickery. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and so every slice, it felt like a chicken breast, which I do like. So every slice, including the the legs, it, there was nothing but meat. Oh, nice. and it was amazing. Yeah, it was okay. really good. Um, I don't know. I make pasta from scratch. I make pizza. Yeah. I have a pizza oven, so I do that. Marta Malakis actually turned me on to that when I was. Uh, I taught at Oberlin for a year, so Mark had me in his house a couple of times. You know, great guy, and uh, he made he made pizzas and uh, in like. 90 seconds so wow. i was like and they were the good they were amazing oh okay. that, you know that you know that uni pizza oven uh i don't know that i do actually check it out it makes pizzas in 90 seconds i'm i'm no lie like brick okay. oven style amazing wow. okay you have to let it heat up for a good 40 minutes but it gets up to it gets up to 800 degrees oh <laughs> yeah that's that's the key so, <laughs> christmas day so yeah. we have a big christmas eve 
feast. Um, do you do the, the, the fish? Oh, I was because like we do. No, we do the, like uh, the seven fishes kind of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah, and and it's you know my 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 background is Italian, but my wife's side of the family is like Cuban, so I get a whole suckling pig and do all the whole Cuban thing. That's Noche Buena, which is the twenty fourth. Yeah, Christmas Day we'll do many different things. So this year we made pizzas in the pizza oven. Sweet. Um, you know, we just eat for like three days straight. I'm sure you have something similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's the best. And then and then afterwards you're like, like you don't want to you want seafood for a while. I'm never I'm never going to eat again until a couple of days on New Year's Eve for three right. more days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Jeez, these are good questions. I don't know. There's, there's a couple of suits that are old and they look horrible on me. I should probably just throw them out. My wife's always trying to get me to donate stuff. Um, that looks pretty bad. I look like a total egghead with a winter hat, like a winter hat on, and some of them accentuate that more than more than more than others. So I would say those are maybe not impractical, but I should stay away from them. I don't know. Impractical. Some of my shoes, some of my more my dressier shoes sometimes are a little impractical. Yeah. They're great questions. I just have terrible answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, on that note, what when with you playing as much as you are in particular in something like a nutcracker situation, what do you what's I assume that you have like ultra comfortable performance clothes at this point all right hope so at least that's a great question actually um because with my colleagues we're always trying out new so now a lot of the orchestras around the country have shifted to all black yeah in other words like if you wore not the tux but just just black black shirt black pants or black suit yeah Yeah, black suit with a black shirt and black shoes which i think i love i love it um and maybe a black tie Sure. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of like like a nice dark suit, a white shirt, and a tie. Yeah. To me, that's it's it looks good, looks professional, but it looks modern. Like the tails right. for me are just like you know, and if I don't never wear them again, that's fine. I got yeah. a funny story about the tails. At the ballet, we're like an all black, no tie right now, um, which is great. So, and we're in the pit, so there's a million options. Like during the Nutcracker, some days it's cold, so I have this black vest. I have a black button down, black pants. Sometimes I'll just go in my black vest because it's cold. But you're right. Like I have these Lululemon pants, black Lululemon pants yeah. that from my PP to weight, look like nice slacks. Yeah. But they're kind of stretchy. Yeah. They're really comfortable. And I have like a, like an untuck it shirt. That's also performance fit black. So from far away, I look normal, but they're very comfortable close to being. And that's mainly because we're in the pit. Nobody can tell. From far away, we look professional, but we all strive for comfort. Um, I will say that <laughs> our bass trombone player is great, great player and great guy. He's hilarious, and he does he takes it out sometimes. Like one time for Nutcracker, he wore a full body jumpsuit that he just zipped in and out of. <laughs> like he'd be wearing whatever. Yeah. Jump into his suit, zip it up, and just go play. <laughs> black, I assume, on the jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah, black. Um, so, you know, from, again, far away, you couldn't tell, but we were all kind of like just laughing our butts off. You know? um, yeah, so we, we, get a little, we get a little more creative down there because 
we have that, you know, people can't see us from close up and we're not super lit up. Yeah. What's the tale story? The last thing I did before COVID was a recording session. And then I was supposed to go, I do this thing called music for all in Indianapolis, which mm-hmm. is like a band, uh, <clears throat> which I love. It's great. So I was about to fly out like the next when basically they made the announcement, like things are shutting down. I was supposed to fly out the next day for the weekend. My wife's like, you're crazy. You can't go. Blah, blah, blah. Ended up not going, et cetera. And I was supposed to go to the Philharmonic the next week. So at the Philharmonic, they have a locker for the extras. And I keep like a set of tails just for that and a suit just, just there. So I can just walk into my street clothes and change, et cetera. So next thing I know, everything, everything shut down. And next thing you know, everything shut down for like what year and a half or two. Right. Yeah. In that time, they decided to gut the hall. I don't know if you know this, but Avery Fisher Hall or David Geffen Hall got completely gutted. Oh wow. The inside. And along with that, my tails got thrown out with the construction. <laughs> <laughs> Although if that's so not a sign, kind of- I've never heard of one. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> it was a sign. We're like, don't worry, you don't have to wear these ever again. <laughs> and I have not replaced them. I was thinking, like, oh, I should probably get a new set, you know. Hasn't come up. They got thrown out the construction, walked into a brand new hall. Beautiful. Um, my tails are gone, they're history. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see them like knocking out, knocking over all the seats, destroying everything inside, yeah. and you know, my tails my tails in the rubble. Right, right, yeah. Leaving the premises forever. They're probably using them to like lift rocks or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's fine with me. Use them for whatever you want. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! All right, yeah, so uh, I don't right now. I don't own a pair of tails. Huh? Yeah, that's great. So. <laughs> All right. Do you have a sports fandom? Well, yeah, I would say the biggest one and. You're going to come across the screen on this one. Um, Ohio State University. Uh, because uh-huh. that's where my daughter goes to school. I know. Okay. I know. That's a, no, see, I that's, I'm, I'm fine with that. That's a family okay. connection. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, she goes to school there. I went to the homecoming and she's my daughter because, you know, yeah. I have to cheer for the team. And so we end up watching. When I was young, I, I lived in D.C. and I was a huge fan. I know you can't say this now, but at the time, the team was called the Washington Redskins. Now right, called yeah. the Washington Commanders. But I, we were huge fans. Well, they were good the back football then. Team. They were good back then. They had yes. like Joe Theismann and John Riggins and Art Monk yeah. and Dale Green and yeah. uh, you name it. Like the yeah. Hogs were the front line. And mm-hmm. yeah, they were because there were years where they were okay. And then all of a sudden, they won a couple of Super Bowls. So that team, I don't think it's the same way now, but that team had the strongest fan base. Yeah. Out of so it's not any the same, team well, that I knew. That's the, that's a uh, Dan, everyone hating Dan Snyder helped like just yeah. ruin that. Now they have to. Shame. You could not get, you could not get season tickets. It was like a 10 year waiting list or something like ridiculous, something ridiculous yeah. like that. So it was almost like you, if you lived in the area, you were a fan of that team. Right. Um, so as a youngster, I grew up with football, even though I never played football, but we watched a lot of the games. We weren't huge fans. Then my interest in football kind of disappeared. Now I'm watching it more because of the college games. Um, I grew up playing soccer. I don't follow it as much as I used to, but I love like watching tournaments. I'll watch the world cup almost every game. Um, yeah. 
you know, things like that. I've also grew up like swimming a fair amount, not, you know, not competitively in high school and stuff, but a fair amount. I enjoy swimming. And uh, so when the Olympics come around, I, I love watching swimmers. I just, yeah. the way they go through the water so quickly and so efficiently, I just, that's something I just love to watch. Um, and I would say, yeah, but in terms of fans of teams, um, like, you know, we live on Long Island now. Um, again, I was never a baseball player, but City Field is awesome. Yeah. So I just adopted the Mets as my team because that's where we go to watch baseball games. Yeah. Um, probably all the Yankees fans are throwing darts at me right now, but, uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> were you a Yankee? Are you a Yankees fan? From- yeah. Yeah, I was. Oh, okay. I mean, I live I, on I like, Long Island. Yeah. I, I mean, it, that was the one that was the one that was a switch because uh, Jets and Islanders. Yes. Um, but uh, we were we were much more of a Yankees fan base and still are than than Mets. Well, I mean, we liked them like they I was young when they won the World Series in the 80s. And I love that team. That team was great. But other than that, it's been Yankees pretty much. I mean, uh, I, again, I, I mean, I, I never grew up playing baseball, but I love going to a, a ballpark and watching a game. Oh, yeah. And, you know, for, from where I am, I just jump on the train in 15 minutes. I'm there. So naturally for me, it's the Mets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I know you said that you 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 have or your family moved to the U- U.S. from Uruguay. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have is, is there any uh, on the soccer side? Is there any connection there? Or are you U.S. follow or, or something else? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I root for that team. I root for the U.S. team and they never end up playing each other, really. Right. Um, um, but I do you root for Uruguay when they play for sure. Um, I still have family there and I, I've been there a lot since, you know, I was four years old recently in the last six, seven years, I've not been there. Although, um, I did get an invitation for next year to, or this year to start doing some regular classes there, which I'm, if, if that happens, I'd be tremendously excited to do, um, and be yeah. like an honor to return there and do that. One quick aside, oh. um, during COVID, I ended up doing some virtual classes for them at, at the conservatory in Uruguay. And uh, it was interesting because I'd never actually, I realized I'd never done these classes in Spanish. I, I am bilingual. Yeah. But the music, the music words, I never really had to do for some reason. I never taught a class in Spanish. So I was really sweating it out. Um, it, it went well. They're trying to get me to go down there on a, on a semi-regular basis, which would be a complete honor for me to do. And uh you know, obviously with my ties to the country, it'd be really, really nice thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Well, there are so many great movies, but I think, I think my favorite movie might be the Godfather, like one and two. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. We um, always have to put that like. Yeah. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It goes without saying. Yeah. Yeah. Have it's you, by the way, have you watched, have you watched the, um, the version where it's the, where it's in chronological order of the first I two? Have. Um, yeah. I've only seen that once. Typically I watch it, you know, in the order that's, yeah. what do you think about that? Do you like it more in chronological I, order? I, I like it as a, as like a, an experiment or, you know, a, a way to reorder. And I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think they, didn't they like kind of, they either like added, deleted, they like. They had some scenes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think my preference is to just watch one and then just watch two. Yeah, I could, I could watch. watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. 
I'm a huge fan of movies. Just last night we saw, I know this has been out for a while, we saw Sicario for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's been around for a while. Um, I just watched Maestro, the Bernstein movie. I mean, I try to, I, I love watching movies. And, you know, and like in New York, I, if there are film scores here, I get to, I get to do a lot of them. Um, so I, I, I have that connection with movies that I really love them. Worst movie ever. I mean, the most recent one was, uh, I think called Reptiles with, it had Benicio del Toro okay. as well. Uh-huh. It was one of my favorite actors, right? Yeah. But that movie, I just did not like. It was, I couldn't believe he was in it because he's such a great, great actor. But, um, that's one of my more recent ones. Uh, but of course, I've seen Bombs a long way. But you know what? These days, I read a lot about the movie before I watch it. Okay. Unless it's something like Maestro where like, I know I'm going to watch it no matter what. Oh, well, okay. Some people, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but um, Whiplash. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I've never watched the whole reaction. thing. I turned it off. Oh, okay. I actually turned it off. You didn't get to the end. That's like when it the best part. I, I mean, look, when I got to Juilliard, <laughs> yeah, I had a conductor that was kind of like that. I mean, yeah. he was tough, very tough um, on students, um, and that was part of the way things were done. I mean, you can't do it anymore. It just doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that I've had that experience. Um, yeah. So that part was actually one of the more realistic parts of the movie for me. I think a lot of young people these days have never seen anything like that. So they're like, oh, you know, fantasy. It, it wasn't fantasy. Right. Even when I was a student, it wasn't fantasy. What I didn't like was, you know, the kids trying to, his version of getting better was faster and louder. Oh, yeah. 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 The whole time. And it was based on all this like yeah, tension and, and yeah. speed. And he punch the drum head and he's bleeding everywhere. And it's that's like, exactly that where my brain went. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and if my students are doing that, there's two things I would do. I would immediately like tell the parents, seek out like a, psych- a psychiatrist immediately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, that's the part that I found unrealistic. And I, I know I'm trying to depict like, uh, you know, uh, desire and the desire to get better and the energy, but there's so many ways you could do it that are better. Like, right. for example, if you look at, um, Amadeus, if you watch Amadeus, right. Yeah. Yeah. The Mozart film based on the play, it's not, it's not factually accurate. Some of the things, but to me, it doesn't matter. I love them. I know that. And I love the movie because yeah. what it does, it, it kind of, some of it's, and people say, Oh, some of it's exaggerated, but okay, fine. But it does, it does a couple of things that are true, which, it does like portray the fact that he was on a, a genius on a level that was superior to many other people and, and depicted what some of those things were. And of course, some things I'm sure were exaggerated. It also kind of represented the era somewhat. Right. And what, and he had some struggles. So in a way you got an idea of what Mozart was like, but with whiplash, I don't think you have any idea what it's like to be, a music student in conservatory. <laughs> yeah. Right. That was my take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, I know I'll get so much hate for that. Cause some people <laughs> love that. Movie. It's like love or hate. I think. Yeah. 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 I, no, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I immediately, I went to 
like he gets in the car. I mean, we're not, I'm not worried about giving this away. It's like he gets in the car accident to try to get to the gig. And then he still does the gig, even though he's like, he should go to the hospital. Like, uh, like, come on. Right. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It treats it like he's like, he's some action hero or, you know, right. Or he's going through the trenches in a war or something like that. And it's like, all right. You know, there's, there's a, an inspired and beautiful aspect to it too. That kind of fuels that, you know, that desire to be good. And yeah. Anyway, I, I know, I know that movies have to exaggerate to be, be relevant as a movie. And if you, if you gave, if you recorded like a day in the life of an actual musician or conservatory, it probably wouldn't be that interesting to make into a movie unless, you know, you exaggerate sort of thing. So I get that. But even with, with that, the level of exaggeration, I just thought like, Oh my God. Yeah. 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 You, you made me the, the, uh, the Mozart part made me think of, I, did you see Elvis that movie? I did see Elvis. Yeah. So I, I had a, I didn't, I had a lot of problems with it for like some of the, the historical things and, and they, and, um, and the fact and, and some of the ways they, they made it seem like he, there's lots of things that Elvis did not credit the black musicians that, that influenced him that, that made it seem like he did like this stuff like that. But there's an energy about particularly the, when he first connects with the audience, like on the sexual level, that is like, mm-hmm. that is a hundred percent what happened. <laughs> like it yeah, was, a I difference. think you're right. <laughs> you know, yeah, and I it's like, it's almost really like nailed that, you know, you know, I was never an Elvis fan, but I enjoyed the movie because it felt like, similar to to Amadeus, those two movies feel like a caricature of who the person was, right? Like, yeah. it may not be accurate, but it's a caricature of what their person, of their personality or or some of a caricature of what they represent historically, maybe. There's stuff you can extract. And like you said, there are certain vibes that are accurate, certain things or things that... Uh, um, what do you call them? Certain reactions or certain uh, byproducts of being that person that are, like you said, it, there was some of it before, but you're right. This, that sexual element of, of the musician on stage and the crooning, you know, young ladies and stuff like that. Like that was a big part of who he was and about his popularity. And I think you're right. That was, you got the vibe from yeah. that scene in the movie, you know? All right. What's a favorite book? I think my two favorite books are a hundred years of solitude, which I read a long time ago and I should reread and believe it or not, Moby Dick. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to say that because I, I tried three times to read that before I actually read it. And I was like, I'm never gonna be able to read this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And then one day I just, I was like, I'm going to do this. So I started reading it and I realized that, because I didn't get too far in the first couple of times, um, <clears throat> I realized that the way the general structure of the book was fascinating to me. You know how it's like every other chapter is the story, and then every other chapter to that, the complementary chapter, is something about like the fishing his, history of fishing off the coast of you know Montauk or or how the best places to catch. Uh, uh, fish in the, in the, in those, in the, and those banks out in, in the Atlantic, the great banks and how they prepare a whale when they're out in sea, how they preserve 
the different products, like all that's described in the book. And I found that fascinating and it made me want to read more like, okay, what else, what else do these guys do? And the story, the story was actually cool, obviously. Um, so by the time I finished it, it ended up being, of course it was a, it was a, it was a big effort on my part to read it. So it ended up being like a major accomplishment, but also like very satisfying to, to finish it. And I, I really, I really enjoyed those two simultaneous things going on in the book at the same time. And I realized it was that it was uh, what's it called? The perfect storm was this. He copied the same idea mm. for another story that took place at sea where like, there's a story and interwoven into that story was again, like uh, what's it like to go out fishing in the middle of, you know, the Atlantic and all these, all these particulars that uh, nonfiction elements of the book that were, very interesting. Oh, I guess in the case of uh, Perfect Storm, it was all like nonfiction. But I'm saying like history, the history of what was going on with the with this relevant story. So um, it also made me think about that book, which is you know they're very different, but it made me appreciate how I guess how much influence Moby Dick had on other books. And so I think those are my two favorites. Um, I was also a huge fan of like Once in Future King, the whole Arthurian legend when I was young. Oh. Sure. But those are probably my two favorite books. Yeah. What's awesome, I, I agree with you completely on, on Moby Dick. I think once I realized what the structure was, I, I like I was like, okay, all right, I you do this, yeah. We go to this, then we come that's fine. Um another book that's like that is um Grapes of Wrath does a similar thing. Yeah. yeah. Great book. Yeah. The two stories. Um, you know, a hundred years of solitude is I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, I need to read that again. Um, I remember I was reading it kind of in chunks and it wasn't, I liked it, but it wasn't doing it for me. And then I had to, there was something I was doing where I had to be in a, where I was basically had two hours to kill. And I went to borders at the time. So I'm no longer around, but the, the, the yeah. rival of Barnes uh, yeah. and Noble. And I sat in the borders and I read it for like an hour and a half straight. And I like made th- I made it through like 200 pages. I mean, I was like, now I get it because it the it was like it was a breeze and it was incredible. I was like, I couldn't I couldn't yeah. stop reading. Well, it's it's constantly yes. like going like this. all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually you're, you're right. It's not it's not a book you can read in chunks or else you will lose the storyline. Right. It was, you know, which which uh, Aurelio Buendia am I dealing with right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I have to reread that one. It's been a long time. But yeah. I remember thinking like, it's like when I saw Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other movies that you could argue are, but the fantasy element and the way it's shot and it there's a sense of like beauty and grotesque that are constantly being, I'm not sure if the right word is balanced, but they're trying to make a, a counterpoint with that in the film, like in reality and in fantasy, that whole idea of mixing those two things and the way they do it is, I mean, that, that kind of stuff fascinates me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So, Gotcha. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Antarctica. I've never been to New Zealand. There's still parts of Europe that I haven't been to. Actually, to be honest, there's so much. We we're on a mission right now to try to 
get to those places over the course of many years. Um, yeah. And we've done quite a bit of traveling with the kids. And, and before I had kids, I did quite a bit of traveling for work, which I purposely cut down when the kids came along. Um, but yeah, those are some of the places, but then you start to think, and there's so many places in the United States that I haven't been to, you know what I mean? That are, that are gorgeous that I just haven't been to. I can't. So the list becomes like kind of unmanageable. <laughs> yeah. You know, but we're slowly like, there's parts of Latin America that I haven't been to, you know, ironically, like I was born there. So so we're just making a list and we're slowly going down the list, trying to include new places every time we travel somewhere. We we do one big family trip a year. <clears throat> Next year, we're going to be empty nesters. Hmm. So I think that we're going to be traveling a little more, just my wife and I, you know, on our own. Since you brought up the topic of traveling, just real quick, I think it's one of the most enriching things you can do. Yeah. And I think that some of these, not, not to harp on this, but I think some of the problems that we have with accepting other groups of people comes from not getting out and about and being in other places where things are different. And I've seen that firsthand with friends from my youth that were very kind of closed off in their views. And as adults, when they got these great jobs and had money to travel and they did a lot of traveling and their views on many things greatly changed, which I, I thought was so amazing you know so i'm glad you brought up traveling because i think it's so important last couple strangest funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you it it didn't involve me directly i don't think i've ever had one of those necessarily i mean i've had mistakes that are funny but nothing super i think one of the funniest things i've seen is i'm not gonna name names but It'll be easy to figure out for some people. But anyway, at the ballet, um, a number of years ago, they decided to renovate the theater. They got a huge, you know, $110 million gift. And they decided to redo the seats, the inside, and to redo the pit so that it could go up and down. For loading purposes, for many purposes, you can extend the stage, et cetera, et cetera, with hydraulics. So like a real fancy thing. And during our, they did it pretty quick too. They took like dynamite to the granite, you know, to the bedrock underneath and got this, put the hydraulic system, they, they finished it. And so the orchestra decided, the ballet company decided to do a series called See the Music, which was Balanchine's motto. He would say, see the, uh, see the music and hear the dance as his way of saying like, they're both extremely important. And so we'd have these things where we would start playing something in the pit before the, the actual concert started at the beginning and the pit would go up and we'd finish playing this example. And the, the conductor would give sort of a 20-minute presentation on what we're about to play that evening with excerpts from the orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. And then we play a finale. And the, as we're playing, the pit would go down. And then we start the actual ballet. So the first time we did it, it included this violin concerto, uh, very violin concerto, which starts with those, those four notes by itself. It was the Berg Violin Concerto. The conductor at that time was this French guy, great conductor with a very thick accent. And he was nervous about doing the presentation because he was doing English. And so the pick goes up and he's about to say like, this piece we're about to play starts with four violin notes. And as he looks over, the soloist was not in the pit. It was the first time and he forgot to come into the pit because once the, 
once the the the, the pick goes up, it's like a safety. Obviously, you can't yeah. enter because you'll be killed. You know. Right. Yes. So this guy didn't make it into the pit, but he was supposed to start the whole presentation by playing for four notes of the, of the solo, and he was not there. And there was a spotlight, and the audience was looking at him, and the conductor started saying, "Like, oh wow, wow." <laughs> and so the the personal manager is like slowly sneaking up to him and <laughs> taps him on the shoulder to say, "Like, you never made it into the pit," you know. So the conductor is just frozen there, you know, with the spotlight on him. And then out of nowhere, you see this guy like climbing over the front row with the violin (laughs) (laughs) over the front row and into the pit, like trying not to keep, you know, ruin his like multi-million dollar violin. And, and he gets into the pit and, you know, wipes off the sweat and stuff like that. And, uh, that was one of them. The second one was, (laughs) I was playing a Broadway show and it was sound of music. Yeah. And the, the, it's kind of a two-parter. The the conductor, you know, it's on a, he's on a platform, so you can see the stage, and so he might be a good three or four feet higher than what you are on a platform. And so there's a scene where the kids come in from biking, um, and they they're supposed to park this heavy bike at the end of the stage and do a dance number, and then take the bike and wheel themselves off. Well, in the middle of that, the the um, the kickstand gave way. And it landed and fell into the pit and landed on the piano player. Oh my gosh. It was a really heavy bike. Oh. But of course it's Broadway. So that everybody kept playing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And the, e- the EMT is like coming in like, are you okay? And the guy's like, yeah, I'll be fine. He keeps, you know, he keeps playing. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just like, so, <laughs> so, so it's like two weeks later. And, uh, again, same show, same show. Uh, the guys conduct, same guys conducting and all of a sudden he's sitting down. I'm thinking to myself, like, gosh, this guy's kind of lazy sitting down while, while the tune's still going on. But, you know, all of a sudden he's like not feeling well and he, he passes out and he falls on top of the same piano player, <laughs> the same <laughs> piano player. Oh my And God. he was okay. He got, he had the flu. So he passed out, but yeah. the Ian, again, the show, di- they kept going. The piano player got up. And he gets on the platform and starts conducting. Meanwhile, this woman jumps over, who's a nurse from the front row. She saw what happened, jumps over, and starts to tend to him. The EMTs come in with a stretcher, put him on the stretcher, pull him out of the pit. The whole time, the show never stopped. It just kept <laughs> going. Wow. Yeah, I was like, hmm, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Yeah, everybody was fine. So I'm, I'm happy to, I'm, I'm telling the story. You know, it's, it's funny now because everybody was fine. Nobody got hurt, but that poor piano player, I mean, <clears throat> air assaults twice. You know? <laughs> Again, sometimes there's yeah. a sign, you know, you don't have to believe, but sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I should have stayed home. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Pablo, last question. What one piece of art could be music or movies, books or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Well, I'm reading a Da Vinci autobiography. That's pretty interesting. I can't think of a work recently that's had that kind of an impact on me, but 
during the off season earlier this year, I did go to MoMA. Mm. Sometimes I'll go to the museum, sorry, museum of modern art. Um, sometimes you have a rehearsal and then you have like three or four hours to kill before the concert and it's not enough time to go home and come back. So I was going to MoMA quite a bit and I always go to uh, the, the Cubists like Picasso and, and, and guys like that are from that period of art really fascinate me. Um, at the same time, there was a, I can't remember the, the, the artist's name right now, but there was a huge video installation um, that were, like worked on alg- these different algorithms so the patterns would keep transforming and changing. And it was like two stories high. That was fascinating. And I just sat there and looked at it, you know, for quite a while. Um, but I think visual art, my first year in undergrad, I was actually a visual art major and music major. And I dropped oh. the visual arts because I didn't have enough time, but yeah, it's always something that's really interested me. Um, so I will go to like an art museum once in a while just to get a little inspiration and see something different and take a close look at some things. And since, since I'm in New York and I've gone to these things a few times, I think I have the luxury sometimes to just camp, camp out in a particular room for a while and just take it in and not feel like I have to see the entire museum every time. Um, so I find that inspiring in general. I, I find books inspiring movies. Uh, I find them all inspiring. Um, I can't think of a particular work at the moment, but, um, yeah, I'll tell you a composer that I find lately really inspiring is An Suk Chen. Do you know her? Yeah. Yeah. I think she's pretty incredible. And we've been trying to, we've been trying to commission her at the, at the pre-college we've got this gigantic grant to start commissioning new works of under, underrepresented composers. Um, and so we've tried twice. She's just so busy that, you know, she can never do it, but, um, she's a composer that I find to be incredible, incredible ear, incredible creativity and mimicking and, and, and mixing sounds in the orchestra. It's just really, really incredible. Pablo, we're done. Hey, I just want to thank you for having me. Um, yeah. I love the questions. I, I love your vibe and, you know, it's a real pleasure. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. So great to have Pablo on the show for these past two episodes. I wish him the best with all the many great things he's doing, and I look forward to meeting him in person and maybe getting some food at one of those wonderful dining establishments on Long Island very soon. Thanks again, Pablo. This week's rave is the 2023 film Fallen Leaves, starring Alma Poisti and Juicy Vatanen, and written and directed by Aki Karazmaki, now showing in theaters and streaming. The writer-director, Aki Karazmaki, has been involved in filmmaking since the early 1980s, while both Poisti and Vatanen have been involved in film since the beginning of the 21st century. Upon reading up and researching more about the film, those who've made it see it as a rom-com with a bit of darkness. I like that explanation. Alma Poisti plays Ansa, a single woman in working-class Helsinki, Finland, who threw a chance meeting at a karaoke bar 
runs into Holapa, played by Jussi Vatanen, a single man in the same location. Both have their issues. Ansa seems to be a good worker who gets caught up in terrible jobs, while Holapa might be an okay worker, but he drinks all the time and frequently loses his employment. Both are loners and private individuals who find something to like about each other, but life continues to get in the way of building that relationship, and it moves on from there. Part of the greatness of the film is based in the performances by both Poisty and Vatanen. They play individuals with no discernible exciting qualities, nor do they have overbearing folks in their lives, but the misery and blankness of what is going on is fully explored. They are both captivating actors to watch, while also doing, honestly, very little in this film. Another thing that makes this movie great is the length at a tight 81 minutes. The film does not linger for too long, nor should it be expanded in any way. It makes its point quickly, and you're free to move on with the rest of your day. One last kudo, though, comes from the writing and direction of Aki Karasmaki. While I was not familiar with his work, I was very impressed with the writing and directing for this film. As mentioned earlier, this is a tight, quick movie, which adds to its enjoyment. And while I say it does not linger for too long, nor should it be expanded, I should note that there are long sequences in this movie where there is no dialogue. This lack of dialogue, and as a byproduct of that, camera movement, works to this movie's advantage. The two lead actors are folks involved in a world that has very little going on. The spaces and long silences are intentional ways that this film makes this point. Those involved in the background of the story sit around, ride on trains, drink, and in each other's company talk very little, and that's it. You're immersed, essentially, in this world of boredom. And that felt very, very real to me. The film is available both in theaters and streaming, so if you're up for it, go see it or watch at home the wonderful finished film, Fallen Leaves. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. Please do that. You can find the show at Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and many other podcast locations. Every episode and the show notes are available at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at PetesPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.